0: Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories.
1: Dear Younger Missy, I just want you to know it's all gonna be okay. It all works out. I want you to know that it's really important that you take care of yourself. Everything ends up being for your benefit, even the really hard things. When the time comes for you to have kids, I hope that you'll take the time to play with them every chance you get and have fun. Forget about the dishes and all the other stuff that seems more important. Just be with them and play and have fun snuggle when you can and just soak them in whatever you do and when you do get mad just get over it really quick and learn to not get mad over anything really it's not worth it whenever you need to forgive the time comes that you'll be that you're hurt and you need to forgive just go ahead and do it and move on things will not go as expected The plans that you have in your life, they're not going to go how you think they are, but you should embrace the change. I want you to know that you're stronger than you think you are. You'll go through some really hard things that are unexpected and you'll think that you're going to sink, but you won't. You're strong and you'll make it through. All those hard things that happen to you, it turns out that they're blessings even when it seems like it's the most horrible thing that could ever happen, one day you'll see the blessings and the silver linings in it. You'll go through some really, really hard things in your life, maybe more than most people, but you'll also have an absolutely extraordinary life and really and truly have more blessings that you can ever even imagine. So look for, them. look for them. Look for the blessings during the storms and you'll see them all around you. I look forward to seeing you later on. Love, Missy.
0: Today on the podcast, I have Melissa Ashton. She is absolutely incredible. She's a mother of six, and she shares about her experience about how her oldest son, Travis, was in a car accident and had a traumatic brain injury. It completely changed their lives. It affected their physical, mental, emotional health, their marriage, And she talks about how she was able to go through this hard thing and come out super grateful for the experience. We learn about Travis and what his life is like now. And she's lived her life helping disabled children. And later on, we talk about how she was able to adopt a daughter named Olivia, who is blind. And she shares the interesting story about how CPS contacted her and some of the legal struggles that they have had in order to keep Olivia in their home. I think that Melissa is really inspiring. She's been through a lot of hard things, but she's so happy and so positive. And she's really been able to see the hard things in her life as blessings. And she's super resilient and Hasn't had the easiest life, but she is an inspiration to all of us of being positive and being able to look for the best in every situation. I hope you enjoy this interview. She is incredible. I'm so glad that you're on the podcast today. I really appreciate you doing this.
1: Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm I'm looking forward to it. This is the first podcast I've
0: done with somebody that I actually have never met in person yet. My good friend Carlin, she just was telling me that you're her favorite person. And so she was sending me stuff about you. And I was like, yeah, we definitely need to have her on the podcast. So I'm grateful that you're willing to do
1: this. Well, that's great. I love Carlin too. She's a blessing in my life. She's awesome.
0: So Melissa, can you tell us a little bit about your family? What it was like for you growing up?
1: So I grew up in Texas and I'm the oldest of five kids. I have four younger brothers. And when I was younger, I had a pretty normal life. I I just remember having a really happy life as a young child. But when I got closer to being around 12 and going into my teenage years, my mom really started struggling. She started having a lot of health problems and she was sick a lot. And she actually developed a pretty, pretty serious addiction that she would deal with the rest of her life, prescription pain pills. And as her sickness and addiction got worse, our life seemed to become more and more chaotic the older that we got. And I feel like I spent a lot of my teenage years really being another mom to my brothers a lot. My memories are happy and normal to a lot of chaos and not really knowing if it was just going to be a normal, peaceful day or. It might be crazy.
0: Yeah. And that's so hard being that young and having to kind of become the adult figure in the family.
1: For sure. And you know, when I was younger, I didn't really realize that that's what I was doing. But looking back, I see that I was thrown into that in a lot of ways I knew that there was problems going on. But at the time, I really didn't realize really how chaotic things were at the time, looking back, I can see it. But at the time, um, I think we just were in survival mode a lot. We had a lot of problems in our home. And I really felt like all my friends at school and at church had these perfect lives. And they had, you know, the kind of life that I wanted a lot of people and I really did make up my mind when I was younger that I was not, my home was not gonna be like this. My home was gonna be different. And it actually really shaped a lot of decisions that I've made in my life. And to be honest, my home has been different. I, I've been intentional about a lot of things because I made up my mind that this is not how it's gonna be for me. And I think it also, I never really was tempted as a teenager to do a lot of things that would bring on addictions um, because I had, I had witnessed what that was like and I didn't want any part of it.
0: Well, and what about your siblings? Were they able to kind of do the same?
1: Well, not really. All my brothers have really struggled. My brother just underneath me, actually, when we were in our young twenties, he was killed in a car accident that's alcohol related. And my other brothers have also struggled and, with addictions and been in and out of jail and and really just struggled in general and and still do to this day.
0: That's so hard. I feel like, you know, you look at the family and you can see that it's it's interesting to see how some people will follow the same way it's their parents, but people like you who are able to really take a completely different turn, I really admire you because that's not the default role you had to really intentionally create a different culture like you were saying with your family it's not the natural path
1: well i think it's also taught me to be more compassionate i think a lot of people look down on others with addictions and people that are really dearest to me and that i love have had addictions and and they're the people i care about most and so i think i've learned to have compassion on people that struggle with all kinds of addictions because i realize you know they're they're just good people that are caught in something and it's, it's not typically what they want. Um, they just, I can just see how good people get caught up in things and it's really taught me to have compassion for that.
0: So tell us about your current family. You have six kids. Is that right?
1: I do. We have, and they're really spread out. Biological daughter and then four sons and they're pretty spread apart in age our oldest son is Travis and he's actually 30 years old and then our youngest son Dallas is 14 and then about 5 years ago we had a little a little girl who we just it's a really interesting story but we crossed paths with her through the child protective services program and then she is now part of our family and She's our, our sixth, and she just turned seven um, just a few days ago.
0: Wow. Well, we'll have to talk about her a little bit later. So can you tell me about your son that got the traumatic brain injury?
1: Just, Jed had is my husband. He had just graduated college, and we were living in Texas, and he had taken a job in Utah. At that time, he had two younger brothers. I had our son, Cade, and then I had just had Rhett. He was a baby. Travis, who was eleven at the time, was playing baseball, and he he was just the very first day of the season, and we'd taken him to practice and he had a really amazing day at practice that day, he really stood out and every single contest and all the drills that they did he he won everything and he's he's a pretty he's always been a good athlete, but he just kind of really stood out that day, but it was just a normal day and afterwards he had begged and begged and begged. It was a school night. So I really didn't want him to go, but he begged. And my cousin who was going to college there and a couple of Travis's friends, she was going to take him to the roller rink for a little while after baseball practice. And so they just got in the car after practice. And I went on my way home uh, with my two other two little ones and just was thinking I was going home to get dinner ready and a regular night. And not long after I had been home, I got a phone call that the the kids had been in a bad car wreck and said, you need to, co- you need to come to the hospital. The kids have been in an accident. I could tell in his voice that he knew more than he was saying. My husband was on his way home, and I left the other kids with him, just ran up to the hospital and walked into the emergency room and just found a really horrific scene. Um, the first person I saw was Derek. And I could see him. I walked in and and the door was open to where he was and he was just covered in blood and all over. And I just, you know, I just couldn't even believe it. And he had been cut really bad on his head and, you know, just looked terrible, but I could hear screams. I could just hear these high pitched screams. And I was, I was looking for Travis and I realized that it was him that was screaming. And finally I kind of followed the sound and I see the room that he's in and I I kind of come up on the scene of a lot of nurses and doctors just really rushing around him and I walk in and he's completely unconscious and he's got these high-pitched screams and his eyes are rolled back in his head and, and then the scream stopped and I walked over to him and you know, I was saying, Travis, it's mom. You know, it's me. Can you hear me? And he, the, he didn't respond. And I knew, I knew how I, I could just sense by the nurses and the doctors and how they were, what they were doing. And just, I could just sense the seriousness. I knew he was hurt really bad at
0: that point. I can't imagine being a mom and seeing your child like that. I'm sure that was terrifying.
1: It was terrifying. It was just something that you never imagine. Like in a movie, you, you don't really ever think anything like that is going to happen to you. And so for a while, maybe a few minutes, um, I, you know, tried to get him to respond to me and I touched him and I, you know, I was putting my hands on his face and, you know, saying, Travis, can you hear me? And you know, he didn't respond and they needed to take him out to do some tests. And so they took me into a room. You need to call your loved ones and let him, you know, your husband, whoever. I went in the room and before I called anybody, I got on my knees and, and prayed. And I think that was probably, probably one of the hardest prayers that I've ever, I've ever said, you know, knowing Travis's personality, he was always just a hundred and ten percenter at anything that he did. Um, he was always just had a really big personality, love for life, and I knew if he was supposed to die, and the Lord was calling him to to do something else. I knew that he would want to do it, and so I knew I knew that I had to respect the Lord's will and His will, and so I got on my knees and I. I said some words that I really didn't think I was capable of saying. If you would have asked me, I would I would have told you that I could have never said this. What I prayed is that heavenly Father's will be done and I I told the Lord, I said I really want him to live and I want to raise him here on earth. I want to be his mom on earth. And I really really begged that he could live, but I also knew that Travis would want to do what heavenly Father wanted. And so I I told the Lord that I wanted his will to be done and that I did not want him to die but I would I would accept that if he was supposed to.
0: Wow, that's really powerful. And I feel like it's times like that that like you said you didn't think you were capable of doing that but I think that sometimes when we're put in those hard situations we realize that we're a lot stronger than we think we are. Like you kind of said in your intro.
1: I have experienced that when you are really in tough and hard situations, you get strength beyond yourself. There's a strength that comes to you that's not your own. Um, You know, you really, you really, I mean, for me personally, I was just very blessed by the Lord. I, I felt his comfort and presence and strength that I know was not, it was beyond me.
0: So what ended up happening that night? Did you know whether he was going to live at this point or when did you find out that he was going to be stable?
1: Oh no, no, no. So at that point that came in shortly after I called my husband, after I had that prayer, I, I called my husband and, you know, let him know what was going on. This was serious he needed to come to the hospital right away. And, and shortly after they came in and let me know that he had, that his brain was swelling. He had a bleed on his brain and that they were going to be life lighting him right away to primary children's hospital. You know, we would need to make arrangements to get there. And that was um, another one, a really hard moment is I wanted to get on that helicopter with him. The life flight team, they needed every member of their team on, on there because Travis was in such critical condition. I didn't even know that he was going to live to make it to the other hospital. It was really, really hard. And another moment that stands out in my mind is just watching them load him onto a helicopter and me standing there and watching the helicopter fly away. I, I, I mean to this day when I hear a helicopter over me or a sea life light, I get a little lump in my throat and my you know kind of feel that feeling in my in my gut. So we, we did meet him at the hospital and when we got to the hospital there they were already rushing him into the to a surgery as we were walking in they were taking him into surgery. Basically they had to remove half of his skull so that his brain had room to swell. And he was put on, he was put into a medically induced coma. And when they came out of surgery, the surgeon came in and met, met with us and told us that, you know, he really had a 50, 50 chance of, of living through the night. Even if he did live through the night and if he continued to live, and if he came out of a coma that he would, his brain damage was so extensive that he would be a vegetable for the rest of his life. He wouldn't have much brain activity. So that was a pretty grim prognosis.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: He did live through the night and then the next days and the following weeks, he really went from bad to worse. He um, started having complications. Um, He contracted quite a few different viruses in the hospital and then he, he ended up getting spinal meningitis while he was in a coma. I mean, things really went from bad to worse. Um, it was really, it was, it was really a few weeks before he started making a little bit of a turn. It didn't look like he was going to make it for a long time. A few weeks. Wow,
0: I'm sure that was so hard for you and. And you had two little kids at home. And so what would you do? You would spend time at the hospital and
1: then? Well, the first really almost a month, I didn't come home from the hospital. Travis was in intensive care and in the PICU and I i didn't come home. I just stayed there. So I left that first night and went to the hospital and, and didn't come out for weeks later we, we kind of laughed and I actually even kind of laughed then my husband or some of my brothers some people they would pack clothes for me and it was kind of interesting you know the things that they would bring but of course
0: like <laughs> imagine what my husband would pack for me
1: <laughs> I mean I didn't care but um so that was hard too that was a I remember really just um suffering because I missed my little boys I I missed them so much I was used to being with them and you know, putting them to bed and, you know, all the routine, the bath and feeding and, you know, being together during the day. And they were pretty young. They're quite a bit younger than Travis. So your baby was Uh, at the time, uh, Rhett was about 18 months and Cade was five. Mm -hmm. They were young and I was used to being with them and, and they couldn't come into the intensive care. They could come and visit me, you know, a little at a time. I would see them, maybe a few times a week for an hour maybe and so i really was longing for them also and even you know the normality of sleeping next to my husband it was just hard you know i missed i missed that but there was you know i also didn't want to leave the hospital so yeah. for sleep much i didn't really sleep a whole lot maybe an hour at a time i might sleep um but just really was with him you know, most of the time.
0: I'm sure that was so hard on you. I can't imagine going that long without having a full night's sleep.
1: It was hard. It was hard. And you know, your body goes into shock. And so, and I'm an eater, like I love food and I'm, I'm like a newborn. Like I I eat like every three hours, that's normal for me. And so, but your body goes into, you know, adrenaline and, I would. I didn't. I couldn't remember if I'd eaten. I wouldn't know if I had eaten. I couldn't remember if I had, you know. And so, and also, I could sleep for an hour and then stay up, wow. you know, for fifteen hours and then sleep. So it was really. Um, I remember, and I don't even know who it was who did this. It was so many kind people. I mean, this the kindness of people. You know, I don't really have words for. There was just a lot of angels that that did so much for us, but someone brought a camping trailer and parked it in the parking lot for my parents actually to sleep in. And my dad and my mom said, you know, you should go out in that trailer and, and try to take a nap. And I hadn't been that far away, like out of that radius away from Travis, it was only in the parking lot, but I couldn't hear the hospital nurses, if they were going to call, if I went to the Um, you know, where you, the cafeteria, like I could hear my name over the loudspeaker. And if there was, you know, if he went into some, there, if there was a code, they could call me. And so, or they could come and get me. And so it was a little out of my comfort zone to to go that far away. Uh, But my parents convinced me to go. And I remember going into that trailer and it smelled like a campfire. And I, I don't honestly know whose it was, who brought it, but, um, I remember going in there and I slept for about six hours and it's the first time I had slept that many hours. And I just, it felt so good. And that's the first time that I really was able to, to get some sleep. Wow.
0: So how long was he in the hospital total?
1: He was in the hospital almost seven months. He, he was transferred to a rehab well, like a skilled nursing facility rehab at one point. It was about seven months before he came home. Wow. After about a month of being in the hospital, we made arrangements where I would, I started coming home at night and we had different people. Sometimes my husband, Jed, would go spend the night with him during the night. Um, my mom and dad um, came out to Utah at that time and they actually ended up moving out, but they helped out a lot and I had different we had different families my mother-in-law came and different members of our family and even friends people would um take turns and spend the night with Travis so he wouldn't be alone so that you know i was able to go home and sometimes you know we could both go home and 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 sleep and then i would just come up to the hospital the next morning
0: i'm sure that was quite the roller coaster for you so, my question for you is if you could go back in time to when you first found out that Travis had this accident, you show up at the hospital and you have no idea whether he's going to live or die and you're kind of in this state of panic. If you could go back to that time and give yourself advice with what you know now, what what would you say?
1: I think that I would tell myself to let go more and and trust the Lord more, put things in his hand. I you know, it was years of rehab for Travis. It was years of before he was able to, you know, he had a feeding tube and he was in a wheelchair and wore diapers and, you know, couldn't walk, couldn't eat. You know, he couldn't even he couldn't even sit up for a long time. So it was years of rehab. I really felt the weight of that and his recovery on me, and I felt like that if I didn't do enough, he he wasn't going to get better. And I felt like if I didn't have enough faith and my family didn't have enough faith, he wasn't going to get better. So not only did I need to make sure I had enough faith, I really needed to make sure that my family had enough faith. And I started, you know, really running the show like a military, like we, you need to get in line and have faith. (laughs) And I don't regret all, you know, working so hard to help Travis get better. I think that was a good thing, but I would have let go of the outcome, but I wouldn't have taken on.
0: that much pressure on yourself that.
1: Yes. I would have just, you know, I would have told myself that the Lord's going to do that part. You need to let it go. Yeah. And how it gets better doesn't get better. It, it's not on my, it's not on your shoulders. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think that can translate into a lot of different things. I think sometimes when there's a problem that we have that's out of our control, we kind of start getting almost crazy about what we can control and try to like mm-hmm. manipulate situations into
1: working in our favor. But okay. Yes, I would definitely say that was me.
0: We have control over like certain aspects of our lives, but we don't have control over big picture things, right? And so we just have to do our best and love the people around us and, like you said, have faith and trust. But there's plenty of people who have faith that their children don't make it, right? It's
1: it's absolutely true. You know, one of the things that was a pet peeve to me is people would come to me and say, well, you have so much faith. And so that's why the Lord's given you this. And I would say, well, then I don't want any faith. Then I'm just going to take a break (laughs) from having faith. But also I actually witnessed that because, you know, being in a hospital and rehabs for so many months and actually years on past that, you know, we met so many people that had been in all kinds of serious accidents and strokes. And I saw, people who were hurt worse than Travis have a complete recovery. And I saw people and I met people and became friends with them. We had a, there was a boy next door to Travis in the rehab facility that we were in for months. His name was Joe and they had the exact same injury. Exact. They had the exact same surgery. It happened about the similar time and Travis made milestones and he started getting better and he started being able to sit up and Joe just never did. He never got better. And we got to be really close to his family and they were so good. I mean, they just were such good people and you just, you couldn't convince me that we had more faith than they did. I i don't think so. So I, I don't, I, I think that um, you're exactly right. People with a lot of faith, the miracle doesn't come.
0: It's true. So tell us how this has impacted your life and what's the day in the life for Travis now? What is his recovery? What is he able to do now? And how has his life changed because of the accident?
1: I will say that, you know, it, it really Im- impacted me negatively. I mean, I really lost myself for a while. Like, I wasn't the me that I know. I didn't realize it for a while. Like, I had this realization probably a few years after his accident that, you know, I've always been kind of silly and, you know, goofy and I've, I've always been creative. I've always liked to plant flowers. I've just a lot of things that are me. I realized that I wasn't that way anymore. I stopped being creative. I wasn't fun. I, I, for, I forgot how to be fun. And I just really, was just so serious about everything. And there was not an ounce of creativity that I could um, I, I could muster. It just was gone. It wasn't there. And I realized that I wasn't myself anymore. And so really, I really had to work really hard to find me again, which, you know, I think going through all of that, I, I learned how to be a better version of me than I was in, before. I think that, I didn't realize the tsunami effect it would have on me as a person, on us, my husband and I as a couple, on our marriage. Financially, it was very devastating. I mean, it, it, I could go on and on of how it affected us outside of Travis. But the thing of it is that is that we worked through it all. And I think that we're better. I'm I know I'm better and my husband and I, I think our marriage is much better. I think we have a a much better marriage because of all that we've been through. So I, I feel like it, it's been a it's been a blessing in that way. I've learned we've both learned so much and we're really different people, um, but in a good way. We had to walk through some really dark times before that all came to fruition. About Travis and what is a day in his life. So Travis is cognitive. He can understand everything. He has all of his memories. He has memories before his accident. He has long-term and short-term memory now, but he is not able to speak. He has never been able to say, he's never been able to, to say one word since his accident. He doesn't have a lot of use of the right side of his body he's been able to adapt to that. He like, he plays golf all the time. He's actually a really good one-handed golfer.
0: I actually, when I was looking um, at your Instagram, I saw a video of him golfing.
1: Yeah. I mean, he goes out on the boat with us. He loves, he goes to concerts, he dances. I mean, he's, he stays pretty busy. His, his eyesight is not good. And so it's difficult for him to read and things like that. So he he has a lot of, he has a lot of disability, and things he's not able to do but he completely takes care of himself you know he can stay by himself you know he helps me with he helps me a lot he actually helps helps me with our little one Olivia quite a bit it's interesting because he can't talk and she can't see but they're very close to each other very close that's really sweet
0: So I know that you were talking about gratitude and how that that's been a had a big impact in your life and dealing with these hard things. Can you tell us a little bit about how gratitude has helped you deal with these hard times that you've gone through?
1: Well, it's something that's really really helped me to get through when I very first started leaving the hospital to come home with my kids, which I was so glad to be able to go home and and be with my kids, but it was so heart-wrenching to leave Travis also. And, and then it would be so hard for me to leave my kids the next day and come back to the hospital with Travis. And then when I would leave Travis, I would just be, it'd be so hard. And I had about a 45 minute drive each way. And I had a really strong impression one day when I was leaving. and I actually had to stop my car because I was having such an anxiety attack and I felt so down and just low. And I just didn't know how I could go on like this. And I was crying and I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. And I thought I, I couldn't see to drive because I was crying so hard. And I pulled over in the hospital parking lot and I had this really strong impression to count my blessings. And the song actually came into my mind. And this song, Count Your Blessings. And I thought, well, I don't, my life is terrible. I don't have any blessings to count. What could I say? And so again, I just had this really strong impression to count my blessings. And so I thought, okay, well, Travis is alive. He's made it this far. And I still have a husband and I have these cute, healthy kids at home. And, you know, I had a few things to be thankful for. And so many people were just doing such, such kind things to us for us and helping us. And um, that was a huge blessing. So I I could count those things and I I had I started to see some things I could count. And so I started making this a practice as I would drive to and from the hospital every day which like was 45 minutes to an hour each way. So I realized that the more I did it, the more blessings I saw. And the more blessings that I saw, the better I felt. And the more that I saw them, the more I recognized them. And then the more I recognized the blessings in my life, and I would see them more and more, the stronger I felt. So it's real power. I, I began to um, not feel like I was sinking under the earth. I started to feel like I could breathe. And I felt the Lord close to me and I could see his hand more. And um, it really changed me all the way around. And, and so it's something that I've continued to do in my life. And, you know, things have other hard things have come and, you know when i'm really feeling down or low or struggling or or facing something that seems insurmountable it's a practice that i do i i start to i start to look at my blessings focus on them
0: well i think that's so powerful because i think it would be easy for anyone to look at your life at that time and say yeah your life is really hard and not think of very many things that were going well, especially you were saying how Travis kept getting sick and things kept getting worse. And, you know, the stress on you physically, mentally, emotionally on your marriage and everything. Um, But I think it's amazing how focusing on your blessings really can have lift your spirits and help someone in any situation, regardless of how hard life is at the time that you can at least look at there there has to be at least one thing that you can be grateful for and that
1: has to there's always there's always yeah. one thing <laughs> there's always one thing and i think if you can find one thing then you can find two and then you know you'll you'll find more if you if you just start with the one thing
0: yeah i remember taking it i took a positive psychology class in college and i remember one of the big things they were talking about is gratitude and I remember thinking, wow, this is something that we were taught as like a little kid that we should, you know, count our blessings, but how those little things really do have such a huge influence on our happiness. And you look at the happiest people and they're grateful for the things they have.
1: Well, you know, I consider myself a really happy person. And I've, I've had people tell me a lot that we've been through more hard things than anyone I know. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's true. And I'm sure there's people that have been through a lot harder things than me, but I consider myself to be one of the most blessed people. I think I have an extraordinary life and I, I really truly believe that I'm blessed more than most. So I consider myself very lucky. So I think that just trying to see that if you look for it, you see it. If you look for it, it's there. Yeah.
0: So you were telling us a little bit about Olivia, how she's, bl- you said she's blind.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, she-
0: so can you tell us a little bit about Olivia and how you were able to have her live with you and everything and, and tell
1: us about that process? Well, first of all, before I tell you about her is if I had not gone through all of this with Travis, I don't think we would have, I would have been able to do what we've been able to do with Olivia. I wouldn't have known that I could do it. I think because of all that we went through and I went through as a mother with Travis, it really gave me the courage to know that maybe this is something I could do to raise, you know, this little girl. Um, I wasn't looking, we had five kids and, you know, our youngest was older and a teenager and we weren't trying to find another child or have another child. And we weren't foster parents, we weren't looking to adopt, but it was just one of those things that we came across the situation. I had met Olivia once or twice before, really briefly. My brother was involved with her biological mom and and it's not my brother's child. We're not bi- related to Olivia biologically. The situation happened where Child Protective Service had come in and they were removing her. And my brother called me and said, would you come down to child protective services and talk to them? And, and I said, well, no, I won't. I told him no. And I, at the time he called me just in the middle of the day. And I was actually in the paint store. We were building a house and I was sweaty in workout clothes. And I was supposed to go meet the builders and they were waiting on me. And I was supposed to bring a paint. I literally was in the paint <laughs> store. And so he said, well, he called me twice. And I said, look, I I, I can't come. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to get involved. I said, but I tell you what I will do is I will say a prayer that they'll be able to find a place. They, they didn't have anyone to take her because she had special needs and there was nobody to place her with. They didn't have anybody. There was no foster home to place her with. So there was nowhere to put her. And he called me. Well, I told him, I said, I will, I'll say a prayer that they will be able to find someone to place her with
0: you had no idea what you were praying for at the time yeah i had
1: no idea and so i get a phone call back from child protective services and they says miss ashton would you be willing to come down i they said we we think that you might be fit the profile of someone and i i literally looked up at, at and, and said heavenly father that's not what I meant. <laughs> that is not what I'm I meant.
0: I was praying for another nice family to take care yes, of mommy. I
1: was praying for someone else to take her. And I literally like looked at the heavens and said, no, no, that's not what I meant. But she said, well, will you just come down and talk to us? And I said, okay. And so I go down to child protective services in my workout, sweaty clothes, you know, and I, I walk in and, you know, Olivia's there and they say, we would, we don't have anyone to place her with because of her special needs. And there's no one in the state. We'll have to move her out of the state. You know, would you? And so they asked me if I'd be willing to take her temporarily until they can find another placement. And I, I really didn't, to be honest, I didn't want to do that. But also I thought, Oh my gosh, you know, this little girl's blind and, you know, she's just little teeny tiny. She was 22 months at the time. Oh, wow. I had no idea what was going on at the time. And I said, you know, and I, I mean, my husband, I thought, you know, it's one of those things like you're, you find a puppy on the side of the road. Like, you know, it's a bad idea. <laughs> you know, it's a bad idea, but. And so I'm, I'm having this conflict, like, I really don't want to do this, but I, my heart was going out and I thought, okay, until they can find another placement, you know, maybe we can help out. And so, so I call my husband and until so they start doing paperwork and wanting me to sign papers. And I'm like, whoa, 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 time out. Like, I have to call my husband. I can't <laughs> bring a child home. Like I, I, and they're like, well, here's the phone. You need, can you call him? And I didn't have my cell phone. I left my cell phone in my car. Like I didn't even bring my person. And so, so I go in a room and I call him at work. Well, the caller ID comes up on his office phone, women and children's uh, protective services or something like that, health and human services. So he sees this and he says, he's in a meeting and he says, well, I better take this call. (laughs) And he hears my voice and he says, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm okay. And he said, are the kids okay? And I said, yes, our kids are okay. He said, are the kids with you? <laughs> I said, no, our kids are at school. And so he's like, okay, I'm listening. What's going on? So I tell him, <laughs> and I expected him to say, absolutely not. I just, And I said, look, he's like, well, let's pray about it. I said, we don't, we've got no to, we've got to- decide right now. Like we have to, I have to walk out of here. And so he said, well, he said, you're going to have to be the one that is primarily going to have to sacrifice to take care of her, you know, for temporarily, you know, for the next little bit, we've got a lot going on. So really that the, the brunt of that responsibility is going to fall on you. So he said, you need to decide and whatever you decide, I'll support you in it. So of course he said that. <laughs> and so I agreed and I said I said, okay, you know, temporarily until you can find another home to place her in, you know. And so I I walked out with a baby in a diaper bag and a car seat. Wow. And put it and load it in my car. That's so crazy. It was like an hour process from when I walked in the door. And at the time, I didn't know. I knew she was blind, but I, she has a lot of medical issues, and I didn't know about any of them. And in Child Protective Services, her biological family didn't really inform them of all that was going on with her. And so they didn't really know either. That really happened trial and error. Yeah, I didn't know all of her special needs that she had. Just I only knew that she was blind.
0: Wow. Obviously, that went from being a temporary thing to a more permanent thing. How did that happen?
1: There, there was no placement for her. There was no foster family that was capable of taking her, um, with unless they unless they moved her out of state. And so then we kind of agree, we we agreed like okay we're going to be a little bit more long term. And at that point in time, we completely thought that her biological parents she she would go back to them. They would go through you know whatever the child protective services ask them to these programs and they would get their act together and she would be going back to them is what we thought at that time. And so we agreed because there was no one, there wasn't a foster home capable of taking her that was available. We said, okay, we'll, we'll take her on a little bit more long-term basis. And it wasn't long before we really started seeing the writing on the wall that her biological parents were not gonna get their act we started seeing them get worse instead of better so I was to be honest with you I was really completely overwhelmed because she was not an easy child and she had all these medical issues at the time that I didn't even know about and so her medical needs at that time I wasn't able to really to take care of her well at that time and she had you know, she wouldn't eat, she wouldn't sleep. Uh, there was just a lot. And I have five kids. And so like they go to sleep at night and then they take a nap during the day and you feed them. And then you, you know, there's, this is what you do. And she was doing none of that. And so I was really overwhelmed and having a hard time. And and my husband asked me, he said, well, can you take her back? He said, can you, I, I told him I can't sleep at night. I, this, I'm this i so I'm so overwhelmed by all this that I I can't sleep at night. And he asked me, he said, well, are you able to take her back and drop her off? And I said, no, I'm not capable of that. And I asked him, I said, are you, I said, could you take her back and drop her off? And he said, no, we both,
0: well, and especially if you know that she's, if she went back to her biological parents, it probably wouldn't a great situation.
1: She wouldn't go back. She wouldn't be going back to her biological. She would be going to an unknown foster situation, which, you know, we already knew that she was scared to death. She didn't know us. She had been in a, you know, a pretty traumatic situation prior to this. And so, you know, she has been neglected and scared and, you know, she's, she's already been through so much. And so, you know, we possibly could be sending her into a worse situation than the one she came out of. And, and, you know, our kids just immediately loved her immediately just adored her and played with her and, you know, just absolutely loved her every single one of them. And so over time, I started figuring out her medical issues. I started kind of figuring things out. And after a little while, instead of, instead of asking ourselves, we had all these reasons why somebody else would be better, you know, a younger couple, somebody who doesn't have kids, you know, people who have more time and all these reasons why other people would be better. Yeah. And then as each day went on, she just fit. And she was just part of our family and our, our kids just loved her. We all were helping out, started being able to get her to sleep and, you know, started getting a schedule over time. And instead of why me and why us, what we really kind of started asking ourselves, well, why not us? You know, we have this loving home and loving family and we have the resources and I have dealt with, you know, special needs and disabilities for years. and so. You know, we really started seeing things through a different lens of, you know, w- why not? And I really started feeling in in my heart that she probably was supposed to stay with us. But I thought, okay, no way is my husband going to agree to this. Like, he's not going to say yes to that. And I, I actually said a prayer and told the Lord, like, look, if I'm supposed to do this, I'll do it but no way is Jed going to agree this. So you're going to need to like send an angel or something. to him because I'm not even going to ask him. I'm not even going to bring it up because yeah. it, no, he's going to say no. But this is what was really interesting. I didn't, I never asked him. I never said a word. I watched him become more and more protective and bonded. And I, I, I just watched this bond create Uh, between the two of them in this loving relationship between the two of them. And I never did ask him when it came time to where, you know, it was time to go to court. There was a split decision with CPS and attorneys and and all the different people that were involved. Her biological dad hired an attorney to fight to get her. So every, there was this split, it was a big battle. And, By the time we came to that point where really the rubber met the road of, you know, that the long-term permanent situation with this child, my husband was before me said, absolutely whatever it takes to fight for her. He was all in.
0: So how old was she at this, at this point when you had the trial?
1: She was two, almost three. She turned two just a few, a few weeks after we got her. And then it was about a year later. Uh, maybe a year and a half later. So she was closer to three at that point. uh, When we, when the, when the first trial we've been in multiple trials, we've been in five years of litigation. Wow. Over with her. But the first trial was a very contested drawn out CPS and CASA who, you know, they, they appoint an advocate for the child in the state of Texas. And many, many States have that. She, she, they told me it's the most contested trial that they've, they had experienced at that point. And as a matter of fact, the CASA supervisor uses that trial in her teaching when she trains CASA advisors. I've, I've stayed friends. I've met a lot of people in the system, I'll just say, and, and have remained friends with many of them.
0: Well, I feel like a lot of us mothers feel like our lives are being put on trial, you know, not literally, but yours literally was put on trial trying to figure out if you were a fit mom or not which i can't imagine having that happen can you share a little bit about that experience
1: well both uh, in multiple times in court in that trial and then other hearings in court usually i was the one focused on i was the one attacked and just just this last year we had another very highly probably even more more highly contested because this time we were sued by the biological father and the biological grandmother, both wanting full custody of her. So we were basically fighting both of them. They had a team of attorneys that worked together and their entire focus really was on me and in trying to discount that I was capable of taking care of her. And at this point we've had her for almost five years. And you know, she has um She has, she has some issues from her number one, just from being blind things that come along with children who are visually impaired. She has septooptic nerve dysplasia, which affects all of her endocrine system. And there's a lot of behavior issues that go along with that. She has been through a lot of trauma and was neglected um, for the first two years of her life. So she has a lot of sensory issues and things from you know, the abuse and trauma that she went through. So she's had a lot to overcome. I'll just say that. And she still, she still does. She's come so, so far, but, um, there's things that she struggles with. One of them is eating. She has a hard time with eating and, but they really, really, I mean, put me on the stand and accused me of, of not taking care of her medically. They accused me of putting her life in danger They accused me of not taking her to her doctor's appointments. They blamed me for her being behind in the areas that she was behind in. It was really interesting because while my husband was on the stand, they started asking him questions about me. And one of the things they asked him is if I worked. And he said that I had a a photography and an art business and I did some freelance writing and, you know, (laughs) I mean, you would have thought that you know they said I was running a you know a, a, a drug cartel. Heaven <laughs> forbid
0: that you have a, a drug
1: out of my house. <laughs> my kids putting the drugs in my kids' backpacks. I mean, they just they just ran with that. Then they asked him if I had any any help, and he said I had a nanny that came in a few days a week. Um, to help me in the afternoon. So mind you, I have teenagers too, and they all have football games and soccer games and practices and, you know, things that we we have going on with them. And we have this, you know, young child. And um, so I do have a girl that comes in um, a few days a week in the afternoons. And a lot of times it's so I can go to their games. Sometimes it's you know, so I can just, um, be here to help them with whatever they're doing. So she's just a she's a hand and an angel. But again, I thought it was really interesting because they didn't ask my husband how many hours he worked and they didn't ask him if he had any help, but they just reamed me for having. So then they, they portrayed me as being a, you know, like a country club mom that just, you know, I'm home and I don't even watch my own kids. I just have babysitters that come in and, you know, do everything for me. And
0: Still get your nails done and
1: play tennis all day. <laughs> yeah, play tennis and you know go to the spa and oh, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, that's what they portrayed me as and really, really reamed me. They, you know, said that I, uh, I put her life in danger. One of the things that they they tried to say is because we had a room upstairs that you know that was dangerous for her because she was blind. She's been out on the boat with us, and they 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 tried to show a video in the court of one of my sons. She sir, we have a boat and and our kids wakeboard and surfboard. But on the surfboard, um, one of, several of my sons will take her on the surfboard, and she'll stand on it. She'll get on their shoulders, and she just loves it. Just she's in heaven on the boat. And I had posted a video of that, and that was one of the basis for the wow. lawsuit that we were putting her life in danger. And, um, but really what was the, the most hurtful to me is that, you know, this poor child has been through so much and she's, we've worked so hard and I've, I've dedicated, you know, a lot of my life to helping her overcome these things. And they were undermining, um, and that, and it it wasn't just that they were undermining me, they were undermining her and what she's been through and and they were minimizing her disability and they were minimizing the trauma that the very people had put her through. And it was so offensive to me. And I remember on the stand, really just defending myself about having help and about, you know, that I, you know, do artwork and I'm a photographer and I, you know, do these things on the side and just having to defend myself, but I remember when I was defending those things and explaining them to the courtroom and to the judge, I really felt like I was speaking for all women. I was completely offended, like how dare you? How dare you question these things? Yeah. You know they, no one asked my husband. He was never asked any of any of those things, and I really um kind of gave me a little bit more resolve and probably helped me build be a little bit more calm because. I felt like I was speaking for all for all mothers out there when I was defending what I do with with my time and my day.
0: Yeah. And I think that it's so hard because no one has lived your life. Right. No one knows what it's like to be you specifically. And so they can't judge what it's like. And it wouldn't be fair to your other kids that you never left Olivia and didn't go to any of their games or didn't participate in any of that. And, you know, all of us have times where we get a babysitter and we go on a date and we do things and that's not, people aren't criticizing every move we make, but I think it's a good reminder for all of us to just show a little more compassion to the people around us that we, we don't really get everyone's situation. Every kid's different. Some kids are easier than others. And so if you see a mom in the grocery store and you know, their kids are are freaking out, it's, it's not that the mom's a bad mom or the kid's a bad kid, but you know, we all have our times where we just need a little bit more love and compassion and less judgment towards
1: us. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Olivia, she has sensory processing disorder and, you know, one drop of water on her clothes and she's over the edge. I mean, she's going to rip all of her clothes off. It's going to be a meltdown And, and we've worked through, but it still happens. And so, you know, you, you don't know what, a mom's child is dealing with who uh-huh. you know is throwing a fit that looks like you know what's the matter with her you know doesn't she need yeah. to control her kid well you know and you don't know if that child's been through trauma or um, you know what that child's been through that is causing that behavior so no yeah there's no judgment over here <laughs> none <laughs> because i'm i'm the mom who you know We, I sometimes I feel like what like we're a traveling circus act, and you know we just (laughs) we just have to keep keep moving and roll with it.
0: I only have two kids, and I feel like we're a traveling circus act. And I feel like my friends who have had more kids and have been through more stages, they just it seems like they're less judgmental. They're like, "We've been there, we've done that, we get it," you know. (laughs) So I think it's a good reminder to just show more love and especially, you know, during this time of the coronavirus where everyone's dealing with lots of stresses that they've never had to really deal with before. And so we just need to be a little more loving. So, but I have one last question for you. And that's the question I ask all of my people I have on the podcast. And that's, if you could go back in time to any stage of life and give yourself advice, where would you go? And what would you say?
1: I probably would pick my 20 year old self. And I think that I would tell myself to invest in myself and to always, always invest in myself and that it's not selfish to invest in yourself. It's, it, it blesses you so that you have the ability to invest in others. And, you know, in, in, in all areas of your life, I would tell myself to not feel guilty for taking time for me or for yourself. And I would I would probably counsel myself to always do that, to take time for yourself. I think that it's really important, especially as women, um, that we do that and that we don't feel guilty about it and we do whatever we need to do. And I think we need to step away from being mothers at times. I mean, being a mom, I think, is the most important thing to just about every mother. I don't think you're going to find one. I think people like to dissect them and say working moms are better and stay-at-home moms are better or worse or breastfeeding moms are better or bottle feds or you know every they 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 like to to dice it up but the reality is that every mother the most important thing to her is her children whatever you're doing and however you're doing it. I've met women in jail that the most important thing to them is their kids, but they're doing the best they can at the time. I would say that the more you take care of yourself and invest in yourself and take time to step away and do things that make you happy outside of being a mother and you'll be, you'll be a better mother. And I would tell me to do what works for me. I, I, in my younger days, I spent time thinking that I needed to do it this way because my mom did it that way, or this is the trend and everybody in my neighborhood or my church does it this way. And so I, and really that's for the birds. You, ha- I would tell myself um, to do what works for you at the time and feel good about it. Yeah.
0: And I think it's important too, to to give yourself some slack because, you know, every day we're not going to always be calm. We're going to lose our tempers. We're going to say things we don't mean and just give yourself grace. And I was reading this book and they were kind of saying, pretend like it was your best friend coming to you and saying, I did this. Like, what would you say to your friend? You would have compassion and you would say, it's okay. But to ourselves, a lot of times we're really hard on ourselves. And so I think it's good to just say, like, it's okay. We're going to be better tomorrow and and move on and and show more love the next time. So...
1: Absolutely. I think we're harder on ourselves than anyone else. And in the beginning, one of the things in my letter to myself was to forgive everyone and move on. And that includes yourself and myself. Just I think we have to give ourselves that grace. You're talking about every bit as much. Sometimes we have to have our own back because no one else does. Yeah,
0: It's true. So, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I had such a good time talking with you.
1: Well, I enjoyed it so much too. Such a, uh, we have a lot to talk about.
0: <laughs> yes, definitely. This is Liz Gardner. Thanks again for listening to Letters to My Younger Self. Don't forget to share this episode with a friend if you can think of someone that you think it will help.